In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connell, the RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. This week, picking up the pieces after the G7. How much damage did the Northern Ireland Protocol do to Boris Johnson's big weekend out for global Britain? And has the Biden administration's démarche moved the dial on Britain's attitude to implementing the protocol? We'll hear the latest thoughts from David Frost at the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. And from Mara Shevchevich's opposite number who followed in the footsteps of Margaret Thatcher no less by delivering a speech on the EU and UK's future friendship at the College of Europe in Bruges. We'll also look in depth at the UK's unexpected request to extend the grace period for chilled meats. Is this the decisive moment when the unruly pupil suddenly turns polite? But first, Sean, to you. You spent the weekend at the G7 last week. After we we spoke on the Friday, they had their respective press conferences on the Saturday. So how did the application of pressure through the Démarche, the gentle encouragement perhaps to say that alignment on SPS and public health standards wouldn't impair the UK's ability to cut a trade deal with the US and the stern talking to delivered by the EU side to Boris Johnson. How did that come out in terms of mending fences or focusing minds? What was the UK attitude like on the Saturday in the press conferences? Well, there didn't seem to be many fences mended on Saturday. In fact, there seemed to be kicking down fences. Uh, and if anything, it was really annoying uh, the British side, particularly Boris Johnson, uh, and also uh, his Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, who was produced for the media early in the day, um, both of them making fairly intemperate statements uh, about their guests, the people that they'd invited round uh, for, well, on the Saturday night in particular, a beach barbecue that was featuring a Red Arrows display and all kinds of fine food prepared by local Cornish chefs. And the weather was wonderful and a good time should have been had by all, except during the data on Saturday, uh, it wasn't, uh, particularly during the uh, news briefings that were being given by the Prime Minister, saying things like, they've got to get it into their heads that Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Now, you don't expect to hear that kind of language uh, coming out at the best of times, certainly not on lovely sunny days like that at the weekend. Um, But it was a sign of just how bad things had gotten because earlier on that Saturday morning, Boris Johnson had had three meetings in a row with Angela Merkel, with uh, President Macron of France and with the presidents of the European Commission and European Council. And the latter two... Uh, had got him in the room and had spent the entire meeting talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that was the guts of two hours in which uh, Boris Johnson was talking uh, back and forth 
about the Northern Ireland Protocol, and uh, that was something he didn't want to be doing because it absolutely was not on the agenda of the G7. But between the EU coming in on one side and Joe Biden and his London ambassador, whom he conspicuously thanked uh, the day he was leaving the G7, by the way, um, they had put Boris Johnson in a vice grip and they had squeezed, and you heard the screams coming out on Saturday from right. him and from Dominic Raab. And sausages were to the fore in one of the reasons for Boris Johnson's complaint. He had a conversation with Emmanuel Macron about the Toulouse sausage and how he might feel if there were barriers to it travelling from one part of France to the other. And Emmanuel Macron said, well, it's not the same thing. France is all the same country, as if to imply that Northern Ireland was not the same country as the rest of Britain. So that may have been what yeah. provoked the get it into your head comment, was it? it perhaps it was. I mean, because the next day on the Sunday, the French were uh, busy saying, uh, no, 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 monsieur. What we were saying was, if you drive from Toulouse to Paris, you don't have to cross the sea. Obviously, if you're going from Britain to Northern Ireland or the island of Ireland, you're going to somewhere that's uh, different. And that does uh, include uh, or lead to uh, the difficulties that uh, have been uh, seen around the Northern Ireland Protocol, which was intended to get around the difficulties of having uh, a land border with the European Union uh, in a part of the United Kingdom, but not a part of Great Britain. So that's where that one uh, came out on. Also, the the, uh, French side were stressing that uh, the president had underlined to the prime minister the importance of, as they put it, keeping the word that the British had given about Brexit issues, uh, if they wanted to have cooperation on a whole range of other things. They said, we're happy to do a reset between London and Paris, but you've got to keep your word on Brexit things. So there was nastiness and niggle and nobody backing down on either side on that one. And uh, President Macron quite happy to be seen to be uh, the tough guy uh, of the, the those three meetings uh, in uh, standing up to the British maybe because he's having an election next year in which it kind of pays to be uh, tough against somebody Mm. in the same way that nobody's ever lost votes in Britain by being tough against the French. Uh, It goes uh, in both directions. The EU, less inclined to get stuck in. Uh, They didn't have any kind of a press conference uh, at the end of the G7 summit. And uh, Chancellor Merkel uh, just did a very small kind of huddle Uh, with her uh, TV companies. Uh, So it was only really the French who had uh, did a a full set piece uh, press conference at the end uh, of the G7. Right. Tony, before we leave the G7, when all of the European actors returned from the G7, what were the uh, post-summit briefings like? You know, there, there was quite a bit of unhappiness at the way Boris Johnson had depicted the French... Uh, intervention or the French briefing uh, and again the European Commission has had to come out scrambling to say you know at no point have we ever questioned the territorial integrity of the UK and also the fact that you know the the Northern Ireland Protocol itself very early on uh, in uh, I think Article 2 of the Protocol spells out explicitly that nothing in the Protocol interferes with the territorial integrity of the UK uh, and and I think, again, this was seen as the UK picking up on a misstep and then flailing it to death or using it as a season ticket to trash the protocol. And we've seen that with the Article 16 misadventure in, but way back in January, which 
Brandon Lewis, the Northern Secretary, or any cabinet minister in the UK will revisit over and over again to say that was the moment Northern Unionists lost their faith in the protocol, um, so it's the EU's fault uh, kind of thing. So again, there was irritation at the way this was being framed in London, and especially since you know the EU has been at pains to say that the protocol doesn't interfere with the constitutional status of Northern Ireland or the the territorial integrity of the UK. Now, of course, you could argue legitimately perhaps that anything which changes the trading relationships within a sovereign country is a constitutional impact. Uh, But according to what the protocol says, at least um, there is no constitutional change Mm. to the status of Northern Ireland, which remains pretty much under the rubric of the Good Friday Agreement and, and the UK constitution. Or if unionists had to lobby the Irish government in order to exert some influence over the body of law that was governing standards within the area in which they live, they might deem that to be something that does interfere with their sovereignty as our constitutional position as well. Well, there's a point in the protocol which a lot of people forget, and that is that the protocol governs EU single market rules and how they apply in Northern Ireland. Now, if there are any new pieces of EU legislation which are not currently covered by the protocol or are completely brand new pieces of law which would then apply in Northern Ireland, the UK does have the right to question whether that new law is appropriate for for application in Northern Ireland. Uh, there is, uh, an, I think it's Article 15, perhaps, of the protocol, which does give the UK the right to intervene and in all situations of the Joint Committee, which implements this whole process and oversees it, the UK is perfectly entitled to invite um, Northern Ireland politicians to take part, to intervene and to generally make their presence felt or, or get their views across It should also be noted as well that Norway and Switzerland happily, uh, or at least they do, apply the rules of the single market in their own uh, territories without having any representation or input into how those rules are made. But they believe it's obviously a, a price worth paying to have access to the EU single market. Okay, so moving ahead in the week then, Sean, David Frost was in front of which committee and what was he saying? Well, he was at the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee and that wouldn't be usual. I mean, his very first statement to the committee was, I don't normally come here because I don't report to this committee. You're not the the people that I report to uh, and uh, this is basically a one-off and I won't be making a habit of this, although he did soften his attitude a little bit uh, right at the very end. Nevertheless, it was a very informative meeting and I thought uh, perhaps... Perhaps we were detecting some signs of a little bit of thaw or a little bit of um, nuance opening up there in the wake of the uh, the kicking and the squeezing that was going on at that G7 summit. And indeed, Lord Frost himself uh, joined in those meetings on the Saturday morning uh, with the uh, European uh, sides, all three parts of it. They noted that he was wearing Union Jack socks uh, in that meeting Um one of them commenting as if we didn't know which country he was representing. Nevertheless, um, back he went to this Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, and I thought there was quite a lot of uh, interesting stuff came out of it. The 
bit that attracted a lot of attention on social media was where he was asked near the beginning by the committee chair, Conservative MP Simon Hoare, did the constitutional position of Northern Ireland, was it in any way affected by the Northern Ireland Protocol? And here's what he had to say about that. The, the position of principle is clear, that the, the protocol um, is 100% clear that nothing in it affects the territorial integrity uh, or the state responsibilities of the UK. And I think that's written into the protocol. So that is a, and, a fundamental provision. And can you confirm, I know the answer to this, but can you confirm just for the record that there's nothing in the small print, explicit or implicit, within the protocol, which could in any way lead to trigger, uh, expedite or whatever, a change to the constitutional integrity of Northern Ireland that could only be done through the mechanism of a border poll, which is out with any competence of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So Article 1.1, this protocol is without prejudice to the provisions of the 1998 agreement in respect of the constitutional status of Northern Ireland and the principle of consent, which provides that any change in that status can only be made with the consent of the majority of its, its people. I think that's clear. Um, it's also why it's super important that we keep the purposive nature of the protocol in mind, which is to support the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and not to undermine it as it risks doing. Now, we've spoken on this podcast a lot uh, about the computer systems in general and the computer, the customs computer systems in particular and their use in documenting and managing the trade flows between the UK and the EU in general and between Great Britain and Northern Ireland in particular because of the Northern Ireland Protocol and this uh, point that we've been making a lot about how uh, Britain was supposed to give real-time access to the EU uh, as part of the agreement they made last December. Now, the importance of the computer systems, of course, is if you can't measure something, you can't manage manage it. Uh, so IT systems are a vital component in any solution, particularly around things like SPS, the trusted trader schemes, pharma movements, tariff rate quotas. The big issues, in other words, that these talks that are going on through the Joint Committee are stuck on, and they're stuck on in great part because of this IT issue. So it's really important to make breakthroughs in these schemes by having a computer system that works. Here's what he had to say about that. So I think many of them would require um, to work properly, would, would require sort of development of, of systems uh, sort of by both sides uh, effectively. I mean, what you would ideally want is, is sort of integration of um uk systems in in some way with those of the uh the single market and um if you're going to get the most benefit out of trusted trader schemes uh, movement assistance schemes and things like that you obviously want to be using those things to reduce process not merely sort of digitize it so um you know we we are absolutely up for being Kind of collaborative about this and um, we have uh, you know the proposals we've made um i think are intended in that that spirit and would would work best if if done in that way um but the problem is that they you know the 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 eu single market external border processes don't don't normally work like that and that's the sort of hump we've got to get over to to make them really work but, but there are there are systems that were envisaged and are in development in the UK side um, that that you think would help, but they're not ready yet. Is that is that what you're saying? 
So, I mean, the, the digital assistance scheme is, is, is one, for example, where, you know, we're trying to digitize um, uh, uh, the movement um, to, uh, to, to Northern Ireland um, and beyond out of the UK. Mm -hmm. I think the, um, we can do some of that ourselves, obviously. It makes life a bit easier, but it works much better if it's part of a, a sort of broader trust trader uh, arrangement that actually reduces process and and simplifies them so that's that's you can go so far yourself and you know we will but it would be much better if, if it could be more collaborative now i thought that exchange was quite illuminating and lord frost also filled the committee in on the updated uh, position paper that we were talking about last week that they'd submitted to the eu about uh, this business of access to the customs computers which is basically uh, having a temporary workaround on customs data over the next couple of months with a long-term fix arriving sometime next spring he thinks that transparency of information like this is a good thing uh, but says there's a practical issue to be sorted out of trying to separate out uh, GB and Northern Ireland data uh, from the uh, computer system. Now, another thing we've spoken a, a lot about here is an SPS deal. Uh, and as we heard last week from Mara Shevchevich, the EU is prepared to offer a temporary alignment deal uh, so that it could be replaced if and when the UK signs off on a trade deal that would be big enough to justify doing so, which the EU thinks is sometimes off, uh, sorry, is, is some time away. Uh, for the British to do. Uh, but Lord Frost, not so sure about that, if these comments mean anything. Have a listen. So they, they say they're open to a, a temporary arrangement. I mean, they, they they claim that, you know, such an arrangement could be negotiated within a couple of weeks, which I, I, yeah. I have grave doubts about, I've got to say, on the basis of how long these things take, even with, with goodwill, given what's what's the stake here. So, and the timetable is very short. As I said, we've already agreed mm -hmm. to deal with, with Australia. We, you know, we, we have aspirations with New Zealand, the CPTPP and so on. So, you know, even if and um, we we don't, but even if we're willing to contemplate a temporary agreement, it might be very temporary. Indeed, I could imagine that developments sort of make it irrelevant even before we'd finish the negotiation. And in questioning from Alliance MP Stephen Farry, Lord Frost spelt out the nub of the SPS and checks and paperwork issue as he sees it. The the difficulty is that they insist on applying SPS rules, which are you know designed for sort of global um, third country trade to the very different circumstances of um, Northern Ireland, where, you know, obviously we, we operate, you know, virtually, essentially the, the same rules. They, they take the view that if you're not in their legal framework, then, um, or, or that they don't have very strong assurances that you will remain dynamically aligned with them, which is the case with the, the Swiss agreement, then there have to be checks. I mean, that is a political position. It isn't a depiction of some sort of existential reality about the world. And they could change their rules in the context of Northern Ireland if they wanted to. And um, if... You know, in circumstances where the the politics are so delicate, and where we're all we all say we're trying to support the the Good Friday mm -hmm. Agreement, and we take the EU at their word on that, then it would seem sensible to to look at these things in a more mm -hmm. yeah. reasonable way. Uh, it's interesting, Sean. Just to the quick conclusion of trade deals with with other countries, it's not necessarily to the liking of the business community in the UK. Some of whose representatives would rather 
that the uh, UK government took a more consultative approach, involved them more in their trade negotiations and tried to hammer out something that at least put business interests to the fore rather than perhaps flying a political flag to show how over the EU they were. Yeah, uh, they are uh, getting a, a bit concerned about that and are looking to get more involved. Uh, one of the things that uh, has kind of upset them a bit is the uh, essentially hugger-mugger nature of the uh, trade agreement in principle that was reached with Australia because it's not a, a fully fleshed out trade deal, uh, but the Prime Minister was uh, celebrating it. I mean, as we mentioned last week, he did have this meeting lined up coming out of the G7 with Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, and they seem to have worked late into the night to thrash out some kind of an agreement. The big uh, gain that the UK side were uh, talking up a lot was a, a sort of a free movement scheme, allowing people from Britain to go to Australia to work for three years. Uh, this would apply to people under 35. The British had originally asked for people under 40, but the Australians said, no, keep it at under 35s. So they think, and that would be a reciprocal deal, that they think will be uh, something of interest to British people and gives a little bit of an easement on the uh, the freedom of movement loss uh, that you have uh, as a result of Brexit. The overall gains of the deal, though, in financial terms, they're talking about $34 million a year, which, as a colleague from the Financial Times uh, pointed out, uh, works out at, per head of population, 52 pence or one penny per week is the gain that uh, people in Britain will get and uh, consumers from a reduction in tariffs. Um, so not exactly uh, a humongous win. Don't spend it all in the one shop, as somebody sure. else remarked. Tony, when you were at home last week, of course, that was during the Poots era, wasn't it? Uh, he, he was strongly opposed to this deal, as a, a journalist colleague of yours in Brussels, Naomi O'Leary of the Irish Times, said Edwin Poots could be paraphrased as saying, this is not the Brexit I ordered. <laughs> he said there was a high level of risk to Northern Ireland and UK farmers. That's, of course, when he was Northern Ireland agricultural minister, as indeed he still is, but as was then leader of the DUP, which he is now only on an interim basis following submitting his resignation last night as we record this on Friday. Yes, of course, Edmund Putz was unhappy with the Australian free trade agreement, but it should be noted that if lamb and beef arrive in UK shores from Australia over a 15-year period, then if those products have been raised by using processes that are banned in the EU, then they wouldn't be allowed into Northern Ireland. And on the other flip side, Northern Ireland would still be able to export stuff to North to Australia as part of the UK's free trade agreement. I think where it's going to hit Northern Ireland farmers is that they will have to compete against Australian beef in the GB market. And that's also going to be a big concern for Irish farmers who, of course, as we know, over the whole Brexit debate, export a huge amount of beef, 250 thousand tonnes per year at a value of four something billion euro. Um, so again, if that is going to be competing against Australia, Australian farmers who can raise uh, beef a lot cheaper, then that's going to be a problem. But it's also a worry if this is now the template for the UK going forward, if it's going to be seeking these tariff-free, quota-free trade deals that involve a lot of beef and lamb and so on with Argentina or Brazil uh, and so on. So uh, that's something that uh, farmers in Northern Ireland and in the South will be worried about.
Right. Northern Ireland calling featuring, featuring heavily in an address by Mara Shevchevic, uh, the aforementioned David Frost's opposite number over in the EU. He was delivering a speech to the College of Europe in Bruges. Maybe explain to us what the College of Europe is and what kind of people go there. Yeah, I was chatting to a UK official earlier about the speech and we were both surmising that Mara Shevchevich was having to impress upon an, a new generation of uh, European Commission officials who are in their late teens and early 20s about the protocol on the basis that they would still be dealing with it uh, in 20 years' time. Um, but he went there uh, to give a, a speech uh, on today, Friday afternoon, following in the footsteps of Margaret Thatcher, who, of course, gave her fam- famous uh, anti-federalist speech in Bruges in the College of Europe back in 1988. The College of Europe is in Bruges in Belgium and also in Natalin in Poland and it's seen as the the finishing school for the the, the next generation of uh, Eurocrats and officials and diplomats and so on. They're all completely immersed in the DNA of the European dream and uh, uh, that that's the audience that he was addressing today about the future relationship between the UK and the EU. Now, prior to his speech in Bruges, he had the, uh, shall, shall we say, misfortune of having to spend 90 minutes on a video conference with Edwin Putz on Wednesday about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, that's 90 minutes he, he won't obviously get back. Um, I'm, I'm told it was a fairly bruising phone, phone call. Um, as expected, Edwin Putz giving a fairly uncompromising position on how the protocol had to be scrapped. And uh, Mara Shevchevich, I think, politely listening throughout, not realising that Edwin Putz would be history uh, a mere 24 hours or so later. But there was one thing that, um, you know, just going back to David Frost's uh, hearing uh, on Tuesday at the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, um, he was talking about the chilled meats uh, grace period, which, as we know, expires at the end of this month. This was a, a grace period agreed by both sides back in December that the UK would the UK would still be able to import chilled meats, sausages, mince pies, and so on into Northern Ireland uh, for a six month period. And during that time, the whole idea was that the retail sector there would be able to uh, adapt supply chains and get those products from elsewhere, notably the, the south or the north. Um, and given the UK's form on unilaterally extending grace periods uh, here and there, the expectation was that they would do the same at the end of this month and everybody's been kind of bracing themselves for how the EU should react. And we've talked last week about having a staggered response in terms of legal action, then arbitration through the withdrawal agreement and then finally arbitration through the trade and cooperation agreement. But uh, at that hearing, uh, as Sean will attest, uh, David Frost said that they had asked the EU could they extend the grace period for a bit to allow people a bit of time and breathing space to try and find a solution. I checked that out with the European Commission. They said, no, we haven't had any request. Don't know what he's talking about. All right. But then last night, behold, yesterday, Thursday, yeah. they did get a, a request from uh, from the UK and then they issued a statement last night. Around the same time as Edwin Poots was being harangued into resignation by indeed by uh, his own party. So I mean what does what does this request mean? It means that the UK isn't going to act unilaterally. Obviously does it cool the temperature? Do we know if they're going to grant the request and dial things down and perhaps extend the grace periods having uh, been asked to do so? Yeah, I mean I think it certainly does dial down the tension and it does show that the UK 
is not going to act unilaterally on this occasion and perhaps all the kicking and beating they got at the G7 has had that effect, who knows. Um, but certainly Maros Shevchevic, when he was delivering that speech in Bruges, made reference to the UK request and welcomed it, uh, or at least welcomed the fact that they had asked <laughs> rather mm. than gone ahead themselves and just done it unilaterally. We right. can hear now from Maros Shevchevic uh, on that point. I welcome that uh, the UK is recognising the value of this approach on uh, one of the outstanding issues, the supply of chilled meats from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Because what the protocol truly embodies is trust. It marks the first time that the EU has entrusted the control of its economic border to an outside partner. In practice, we agreed to adjust the rules of the single market uh, for the sake of a compromise beneficial to Northern Ireland allowing it to stay inside the single market for goods. This is a major concession from the EU, made uh, with an eye firmly on protecting stability in Northern Ireland. On its side, the UK agreed that Northern Ireland would remain aligned with the EU rules on goods, accepting that this would mean checks on goods moving between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Everyone around the table understood what uh, this compromise is meant in practice. The EU will not and cannot accept this delicate balance being unilaterally changed or disapplied because of buyer's remorse. So they welcome it, Tony, but there were a number of conditions added in after they had welcomed it in, in their statement last night, saying that, well, first of all, the Northern Ireland Protocol must be entirely implemented. We will reach solutions, but there are no solutions to the Northern Ireland Protocol, i.e. it's there to stay. So in the spirit of that, do you think, and with the marching season coming up, the European Commission would be minded to grant the extension to the grace period to get out of a long, hot summer and begin constructive discussions anew, perhaps in the autumn? I think, on balance, the the view over here in Brussels is that, yes, they will grant the extension. I mean, there's not a huge amount to be gained by refusing it, and then the UK goes ahead and does it unilaterally, and then we've got another ratcheting up of rhetoric and tension uh, right before you know the, the full peak of the marching season. I mean, people are genuinely irritated at this because the grace period that was agreed in December was agreed on various conditions, such as labelling uh, meats coming in, using a simplified export health certificate to, to show and to declare that none of these products would go across the border in, into the south uh, and various other conditions which the Commission has been saying you know, have not been met. So it's kind of hard for them to grant an extension to that if the conditions for the first extension were, were not met. And of course, all these things have to be run by member states. It's not just Mara Shevchevich who says, yeah, OK, there you go. Uh, and member states, as you know, are you know, at the end of their tether with um, this whole issue. And another point being made is, look, we, you know, we can't just have rolling extensions and rolling derogations. Businesses in Northern Ireland need to know what they're dealing with. They need stability and certainty, uh, you know, 12 months in advance. And if they keep changing the goalposts and rolling out these extensions forever in a day, then it's, it doesn't really help people. Um, another point that Maros Shevchevich made in his speech was that the, the, the UK is not selling the protocol enough for its benefits, such as giving Northern Ireland access to two huge, valuable, 
high high value single mar- single markets, the UK one and the EU's one. Uh, we can hear what he said about that. So I want to see the joint held investment conferences to install confidence in the business community in Northern Ireland and pave the way for further opportunities. But we cannot do this alone. It has to be a joint endeavour between the EU and the UK. Sean, the European Commission released a statement to say that they had received this request, but apart from David Frost's mention of this at the Northern Ireland Committee, we didn't see the sort of, at at least I didn't, I may have missed it, see a a letter being tweeted out to the effect that this this request had been made. Would there be some reluctance perhaps to blow too many trumpets about this request being made? Well, yeah, I mean, there's not much to be gained uh, for the British government in Britain by uh, doing that. But again, if the object here is to de-escalate tensions, then this is probably uh, for the better. Uh, if you, know, you don't want to be seen to be uh, having taken a kicking at the G7 summit and then you're starting to bend the knee to the EU, uh, if that's how people would view it. Uh, remember, we've got a new uh, talk sh- uh, television uh, station over here now, GB News. Uh, they probably like nothing better than to get into a little bit of controversy on this, this topic. Right. And the more people are talking about it, uh, the less effective it becomes. So if the British government's aim is just to damp things down, particularly in Northern Ireland, particularly during the, the marching season, then uh, it is a fairly cost-free type of concession, if it even is a concession, to, to formally request uh, an extension from the EU. Again, Going back to last week and what Mara Shevchevich was saying here after he had met uh, David Frost, it, re- reverting back to last year when they were negotiating uh, these uh, agreements in uh, back in December, saying, I kept saying to the British side, do you need more time? Are you sure this grace period is long enough? Would you like a bit extra? Mm-hmm. So there seems to be a willingness, certainly, on the EU side uh, to uh, allow grace periods and grace period extensions, but it has to be by uh, agreement. And that's the key thing here. The, the uh, And again, Simon Coveney a couple of weeks ago stressing this, unilateral actions are where people run into trouble. If you do it through the normal channels and make a request, then usually the request is favourably uh, treated uh, because there's really not much to be gained, as Tony was saying, by the EU refusing and, and sticking to the letter of the law and being accused of purism and uh, over-legalism uh, at the very least uh, by uh, people in Britain. So de-escalation suggests keep it as subterranean as possible. Everybody just agrees this one, nods it through, and hopefully things go quiet for a couple of months. But it's not a question of picking up in the autumn. Lord Frost at the committee during the week was saying there are basically daily contacts between his team and the EU team uh, pushing ideas back and forth uh, and trying to advance things. But the big right. picture, the big ticket items, as we said, just not getting the traction that uh, is required. Yeah, and if you could both come in on this, they're talking on a daily basis. And is it one of these things that's a dialogue of the deaf, of the same things being said over and over again? Or is there a gradual and incremental move towards one man's equivalence becoming one man's alignment meeting in the middle and calling it something else like equalignment or ambivalence that close i don't know whether things are, are are moving quite that close i mean the way it tends to go in these broad spectrum negotiations is you start making uh, 
headway in one area and then no headway in about two or three other areas uh, which might be contingent on making or not making headway in a, a seventh or eighth different area and again we come back to this issue of the uh, computer and information systems uh, until that one gets cracked it's difficult to see lasting agreements being made in some of the other areas like uh, the uh, food movements the SPS the pharmaceutical deals, a lot of other things are just going to have to be temporary patch-ups until you get a solid way of documenting the trade flows, which is the essence of the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's having a measurable uh, documentary trail for the movement of goods between Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, and really, a computer system is at the heart of that. That's why I keep banging on about it anyway. Tony? I mean, just, to, just to pick on, up on, on that, yeah, I mean... Th- what what I'm basically hearing is that the, the um, certainly UK officials you speak to say, okay, they don't want equivalence, we don't want dynamic alignment. Let's try and find something in between. And there was an interesting exchange. Uh, Sean probably picked up on this as well at the at the committee hearing when David Frost was really challenged directly, like you know why what is the big problem with a temporary, you know, a dynamic alignment on a temporary basis. You could, as a sovereign government saying, say, we're going to do this and we reserve the right to pull out of it if we get a trade deal elsewhere. That's a sovereign decision. Uh, And David Frost said, yeah, well, that's true. But uh, our problem is that the EU would probably want to police such an SPS veterinary agreement. And when he said the word police, we all know he's talking about the European Court of Justice, which was forever and a day the big bogeyman for, for Brexiteers and given that they did manage to keep the ECJ largely out of the trade and cooperation agreement. I've been asking around here in Brussels, do you think something could similar could be done for the Northern Ireland Protocol if you if you had some kind of um, independent arbitration mechanism? And, yeah, arbitration, yeah. Now, I've, I've been told there's such a thing or such an idea as a biosecurity monitoring committee um, now, this is something that I believe the UK has suggested, possibly in one of their papers they presented to the Commission, uh, as a way of arbitrating. You know, the, the basic argument from the UK is, look, we both start with high food standards. If either of us uh, introduce legislation that diverges from those food standards or lowers those food standards, then an arbitration panel could come in and say, uh, yes, that divergence does lower uh, the food standards and raises the risk, then the other side would be able to increase checks. So that's getting back to this idea that we've talked about before that the UK says we should have a risk-based approach to the protocol. Stuff coming in from GB into Northern Ireland is not clearly the same as stuff coming in from uh, China or Botswana, as one of the MPs said in the um, in the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. Uh, I don't see what the problem is with Botswanian no. food. This, this podcast there, certainly wouldn't stand um, over any aspersions being cast on the good food of absolutely, Botswana. Absolutely, yeah. And yes, indeed. Um, so... Now, now, is the is the EU going to bite on that? I think it'll take time. Uh, I don't think this is anywhere near being cooked, but this is something that they could be talking about, um, and that may have been again a little uh, signal from David Frost that, well, okay, we're, we can talk about some kind of SPS agreement that's not alignment, that's not just equivalence, but that does the trick. Uh, and doesn't involve the ECJ, uh, and that's why you're hearing this word arbitration. 
but how that would work, how quickly would it be to work that kind of thing up into an agreement, that's another question. Certainly not before the 1st of July. Right. Okay. Well, I suppose if if the extension is granted, maybe there'll be sufficient fudge could be stuck into the gap in the meantime uh, to allow those talks to continue. So I suppose we should probably at this stage look ahead to the coming week and what's coming up on your respective radars. Sean, you? Well, next week is the fifth anniversary of Brexit. The, The vote, the referendum happened on the 24th of June five years ago, so on the 24th of June uh, this year. Um, there's uh, several things uh, are in the offing. Uh, one of them is uh, that man again, Lord Frost. He's uh, in conversation, as the uh, bogish phrase has it, with Professor Anand Menon uh, as part of the UK in a changing Europe. Uh, they're doing a series of events next week, uh, including some stuff on how public opinion uh, is on now. But you can register for that one online, should you wish to uh, hear Lord Frost or David Frost in an interview situation, uh, and why not? Uh, also, far be it from me to plug a rival podcast on this podcast, but mm. let's um, hmm, plug mm. a rival pro- podcast on this podcast, the, uh, Westminster, the Westminster Insider podcast from Politico. Uh, we'll give them the, uh, the thumbs up for uh, this week only, I guess. Uh, but they've got a, a five-year uh, retrospective as well on the referendum. Uh, featuring Paul Stevenson. He was the Director of Communications at Vote Leave, and Craig Oliver, who was David Cameron's spin doctor uh, in uh, 10 Downing Street at the time. Two little bits I'll I'll pull out from the the transcript of that one. Um, Dom, that's of course Dom Cummings, Dom had been thinking about it for 10 to 15 years. This is the strategy to try and win this campaign, uh, according to Paul Stevenson. And that's why we were in a good place strategically, because there was a core of people who'd been working on campaigns like this in the past, like Business for Sterling, the No Euro campaign. Uh, Dom had done a lot of work for people like Matthew Elliott for about a year before. So when he came into this, he had a very clear vision and he understood the issues very well, which I would say that the Remain side didn't. And then on the Remain side, just one from Craig Oliver saying, I'm often asked what I'd do differently in terms of the campaign. And I always say semi-facetiously that I'd invent a time machine and go back 45 years and actually make prime ministers and governments over time make the case for the EU. EU has been a friendless institution in the UK since it was founded, a convenient whipping boy for prime ministers. Nobody was doing its PR. And then suddenly to expect in a relatively short period, we were suddenly going to make everybody love it and think it was great. Well, that was pretty naive, really. Well, yep, five years on. That's about it. One more little date for the diary. (laughs) Northern Ireland Affairs Committee next Wednesday morning. Brandon Lewis, Northern Ireland Secretary of State talking about um, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Okay, right. Well, the fifth anniversary, for the record, is the wooden anniversary. So there you go. Tony? Yeah, I'm not sure how I'll be celebrating it. Uh, I mean, I remember the the night very well in Brussels. There was a horrendous storm and the sky was orange and it was very apocalyptic altogether. Um, But we all thought that uh, it would be a narrow Remain victory. Um, And it wasn't, as we know, to our costs. But thankfully... This podcast would not survive without it. So next week we have a European Council in Brussels. We've got uh, leaders coming in person to Brussels for a two-day summit. Um, things are getting back to normal on the EU front as well because there's going to be a foreign affairs meeting in Luxembourg and a general affairs committee meeting as well the day after. That's European Affairs Ministers. And they're going to be looking at this question of Hungary and Poland and Article 7 and whether or not the EU can reprimand them or go so far as to withhold voting rights for 
alleged breaches of the rule of law and European values. Uh, Brexit will probably feature a bit at the summit, I mean, in, in terms of uh, leaders arriving and now for the first time in over a year being able to be asked questions by journalists who are there rather than talking into uh, a solitary camera uh, without being challenged or questioned. So uh, let's hear what they say about the protocol and grace periods and so on. I, I do suspect that the medicines issue, which we've talked about a lot, um, it's my understanding that they are going to work very quickly on this and they could even have a deal on medicines by the end of this month. Uh, whereby medicines can flow from Great Britain to Northern Ireland without needing to have special authorisation that's kind of governed by the European Medicines Agency. Uh, and this is something that the EU is, is keen to, to, to do quickly, kind of hive it off from all the other protocol-y type issues like SPS and get that done quickly. So we look out for any movement on that ahead of next week. Okay. All right, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungo, Norty's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, our correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.